It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It's because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. And Lord, as each of us had opportunity to open up our eyes this morning, we're grateful that your mercy awaited us. Lord, where would we be about without your mercy? We'd be consumed. We thank you that you're a God that's full of compassion. You're loving, you're wonderful, you're long-suffering. You're patient with us. And I thank you for your patience toward me. For many years, I refused to acknowledge that you're Lord and your Savior, yet you waited. You waited, and you worked in me, you worked in us, the work of salvation. What a glorious realization and truth this is. Your love abounds, and we don't need to look far to find it. We look to you, and we look to you this morning to speak to us, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning, family. Uh, Before we begin, I'd like to show a video. It's about four, a little over four minutes, and it was... um, In Israel, they gathered together about a thousand musicians, volunteered their time, and this was created uh, a month after October 7th, after the attack on Israel. And it's really very powerful, it's very beautiful, and I think it serves as a reminder for us uh, to keep the hostages in prayer. They're still held captive. And I, I pray this ministers to you in a way that only God can. So focus in and enjoy it. It's a real blessing. I'll get the sound going in a moment, but uh, this is actually um, 
produced in Israel in a place called Caesarea by the Sea. And it's an amphitheater right on the Mediterranean Sea where Paul the Apostle, uh, he met with, he was imprisoned here, and he met with uh, Felix and King Agrippa. And we'll get to that one you know, later in the book of Acts. But uh, we were there in 2017, and it's, it's quite an incredible place. And to know that they gathered here for this purpose is wonderful. Amen.
Pretty powerful, huh? Yeah. Yeah, you probably picked up on it, but if you didn't, the, the shirts that uh, some of those folks were wearing had pictures of the hostages that are continuing to be held. So, um, you know, anti-Semitism has grown throughout the world. It's grown in our own country. Um, what is, what is, uh, hatred against the Jews. Yeah, it's grown about 800% since this has happened. And uh, when I think about it, you know, it, it's, unfortunately, it's not new. I mean, back in, in the day long ago, uh, when Jesus was born, uh, the enemy tried to get him killed because he, he knew he was the Christ child, the Savior. And, of course, that didn't work. Uh, you know, King Herod ordered the, the death of uh, the baby boys in that time, and, and God's sovereign, God's will is being done, and Jesus continues to save lives in spite of hatred in the world. And, you know, and the, and the Jews are God's chosen people. Uh, they're not a perfect people. Like, nobody's perfect. Yet God is a very special place in his heart for Israel and for the Jews. And we need to keep them in prayer and support them in any way we can. So let's, let's pray right now and, and ask the Lord's hand be upon them. And Father, we, we, we put those uh, hostages before you. you. You see exactly where every single one of them is. And you know what it's going to take to, to free them. Uh, so Lord, we just lift their families up to you. We lift those hostages up to you and pray you would meet their needs, that they would find their way to the Savior. Father, that they would, uh, they would know that there's a God in heaven and a Savior named Jesus that came to spare their lives and to bring them to salvation. So we commit them to you. The Bible tells to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We're going to continue this chapter in this morning, verses 22 through 26. And the title is, The Gospel Brings Freedom. And maybe, you know, as we, we go through this passage, you're wondering, you know, what kind of freedom are we talking about? And uh, I think you're going to realize uh, what took place at this point in history as the gospel is shared and as Paul the Apostle, faithful, faithful man of God, has done what needs to be done to bring others to Jesus Christ. And, you know, uh, I just want to preface it with this. Oftentimes, we as human beings, and uh, specifically as Christians, we can argue over things that probably we ought not argue about. There's, there's differences within the body of Christ. And, you know, that's what makes the body of Christ so beautiful, isn't it? There's differences. There's even, you know, differences in the way that, that we might view some of the Scriptures. And I just want to encourage you to continue to read the Word of God, study the Word of God, know what you believe and why you believe it. And the, the most important thing in all the Bible is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth to save sinners like us from our sins. That is the most important. It's the theme of the entire scriptures, that God has expressed his love to us through a Savior. And he continually extends his arms of love to all of mankind, all of mankind, 
to come to him to be saved. For God is willing that none perish. In other words, he's not willing that any are separated from him for, for eternity, but that all come to him through repentance to receive forgiveness of sin. The sole mission of Jesus, he came to save sinners from their sin. Amen. Well, if you remember from last time, Paul the Apostle, he, he arrived in Jerusalem where he was greeted by the brethren, other believers from the church at Jerusalem, and he met with the Apostle James and with the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and he shared in detail all the Lord had done through his three missionary journeys. And he was especially sharing what God had done in and through the Gentiles. The Gentile, of course, is a non-Jew. What God had done in the Gentiles in bringing them to Christ. And together they glorified the Lord. And what a wonderful thing it is when a person comes to Christ, isn't it? Isn't it a great cause to rejoice? We rejoice along with the heavens or the angels of the heavens when one sinner comes to repentance. But while there was rejoicing over Paul's report, there was also some apprehension about Paul's reputation among the believing Jews who were very zealous of the law. And remember, the law is not bad. The law, is, the law of God is good. It's perfect, converting the souls. But what was happening was there was a false, a patently false report was circulating concerning Paul. And the rumor or this false report said that Paul taught the Jews that, that they needed to live among the Gentiles and, and abandon the law of Moses not to circumcise their sons or forsake the Jewish customs. That was the rumor. But contrary to the rumor, Paul taught the Gentiles that it was religiously inconsequential whether they circumcised their sons, nor did he teach them the Jewish customs. He never taught the Jews not to circumcise their sons, nor to abandon their Jewish customs, or to disregard the customs that were established. And I'm sure that, that Paul, when he met with, with James and with the elders, he was very grateful for the heads up and gave him some time to pray and to think about the things that were presented to him, things that were spoken of him. And they knew that it would cause trouble if it didn't get addressed and if they didn't share it with the Apostle Paul in order to bring some clarity, uh, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles alike. And what, what is this message of the gospel all about? So in verse 22 of Acts chapter 21, they ask this question, what is it there for? The multitude must needs to come together, for they will hear that thou art come. In other words, Paul, what, what should we do here? What should we do about this? And the people knew, they said, they know, they know you're here, Paul. What are we going to do? So the elders they must have given some thought about this in advance of Paul's arrival, and they proposed a solution that we see in verses 23 through 25. And here's what they said, do therefore this that we say to thee, in other words, what we're asking you to do, we have four men which have a vow on them, take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads, and that all may know those things whereof they are, were informed concerning thee are, are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. 
as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. So the solution that they proposed involved these, these four Christian men that have taken a vow. And as we read this, it's very clear that the vow that they took is what you call the, the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is, is found in Numbers chapter six, number six, and it had nothing to do with a person's salvation. We need to remember this. It had to do with a person that knew God and loved God and took this vow as a means of expressing their extraordinary commitment and dedication to God. The opportunity to take this Nazarite vow was for anyone, any man or woman from any tribe. Anyone could become a Nazarite that is set apart to seek the Lord and to serve him. But if they chose to take this vow, God says, there's three things that I require. And we find these in Numbers chapter 6. The first requirement in chapter 6, verse 3, it says, He shall separate himself or, or herself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. So they're to be very purposeful in what they do, purposeful uh, to abide in these things, and we're going to talk about it now. They're to have nothing to do with grapes or any form of grapes, wine, you know, Welch's grape juice, whatever that might be, raisins. Uh-uh. No. Now, why did God choose grapes and grape products? Well, the Lord knows that those who really desire to focus on him to be used by him cannot allow their minds to be influenced by alcohol. Well, how about grapes or raisins? I believe God is saying this. In order that you wouldn't even be tempted to drink wine, stay away from all things that might remind you of the things that you must avoid. It could be a person, place, or thing that brings you right back to a time or a place to stir up a memory that might prove itself to be harmful to you spiritually. So God declares that those that want to be used by him and want to hear from him need to have a clear head and stay away from anything that would cause intoxication or altering of their thought processes. You know, Paul the Apostle talked about this as well in the New Testament. He said, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Well, the next thing, the second thing that the Nazarites were to do is to be identifiable. Identifiable publicly. We find this in verse 5 of number 6. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall be no razor come upon his head until the day be, days be fulfilled, in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. In other words, they'd be able to tell, identify publicly because their, heads would not, their hair would not have been cut. So they made this commitment to be very focused and totally focused on their service to the Lord. And people would say, yes, okay, now, I, I see who that is. I, I know that that's a person that's taken the vow. The hair has grown. It was a mark that they were separated from society, not separated from, but separate from, different from society, and be identified as a Nazarite. Samson was a Nazarite. He took the Nazarite vow, and that's why his hair was never cut until later on. 
This was contrary to the Jewish customs of the day for men to have long hair. So the Nazarites, they had to identify themselves in this way in order that people would know that, yes, this person has set aside his life, his or her commitment to the Lord. So it was very purposeful. They were identifiable publicly. And the third thing we find is they are to be separate. We see this in Numbers 6, verses 6 and 7. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because the consecration of his God is upon his head. So they're to be separate. The Nazarite was to be separated from dead bodies, not to come in contact with a dead body. And you might be thinking, well, you know, that's not a problem. That's not something that I would do anyhow. But for us, you know, we're not talking literally here about dead bodies or corpses. You, you know places that might ooze death spiritually, right? We, we, we experience these things. We see them around us. And the whole idea is this. If I choose to hang around places that are unhealthy for me as a Christian, well, then there might be a problem. And I'm not separated. I'm not separating myself from those things. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So this is important for us to know that this law of the Nazarites, because of it speaks of a single-hearted devotion that a person has for the Lord, a single-hearted passion for the Lord. This is what that vow is all about. And if we incorporate these things into our lives, first, to be purposeful in our desire to please God, and I pray that we're purposeful in our desire to please God, second, to be identifiable publicly, you know, not to say, well, we need to grow our hair long or act in certain ways, but just be who you are in Christ. You, you know, the Bible says you are a new creation in Christ. Behold, all things have become new and the old things have passed away. Just be who you are. Be a light in the dark places. Be an example of Christ's love. Be an example of the new life that he has given to you. You know, you know we don't have to go around with a sign, I'm a Christian. People ought to know because they see your behavior, they see your conversation, they see your character, your devotion, your honesty, all those things. And we don't parade it around. Just be who you are in Jesus Christ. So we're to be identifiable publicly and third, to be separate. You will separate, you'll blossom and grow in the Lord. And not that we, we shy away from people, but because of who we are in Jesus Christ, well, there's, there's a difference. There's a separateness. So in Acts 21, we see that they, what they instructed Paul to do. He said, take them, verse 24, purify thyself with them and be at charges with them. In other words, Paul, we want you to pay their expenses of these four men, that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou keepest also, that thou also walkest orderly and keep the law. So rather than for Paul taking the Nazarite vow himself, they called upon him to purify himself in a Jewish purification ceremony. And they still do these things today. It's called a mikvah. It's a Jewish ceremonial bath. It would be like immersion in water, and it would, it would express 
their, and represent their desire to be clean of anything that would defile them before worshiping God in the temple. Now, the vow of the Nazarite could be a 30-day, 30 30-day 30 minimum, but it could be months, it could be years, it could be in, 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 excuse me, indefinite. And, but Paul would only be in Jerusalem for seven days, so he couldn't take the Nazarite vow. But when the vow was ended, they would be required to shave their heads and burn their hair upon an altar as a peace offering. Now remember that, that Paul spent many years ministering to the Gentiles. So in the eyes of the Jews, you know, the Jews and Gentiles, they, they didn't see eye to eye on almost anything. The Jews looked down upon the Gentiles. And because Paul was ministering to the Gentiles, they're thinking of him. He said, well, listen, you're defiled. You need to be purified. So they said to Paul, it's a good idea that you would go through this purification, thinking that this would help clear up some of the misconceptions they had about the Apostle Paul. It was also suggested that Paul pay for the sacrifices, and there were multiple sacrifices. We just mentioned that in verse 24, pay their expenses for the men. And the effect they hoped this would have upon the Jewish Christians is that they would know that the rumors that were flying around, these rumors are all false. They're asking Paul to pay the support, and Paul was willing to do so. So in verse 25, we see that James and the elders were very quick in this proposal to offer Paul the reassurance concerning the Gentile Christians that nothing would change concerning them. They're going to be fine just the way they are. That the decision that was previously made in the Jerusalem council, this was back in Acts chapter 15, that would stand. And the determination back then is that the Gentiles were not under the law, but here's what it said, but the, that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. James is asking them to refrain from things that would needlessly offend the Jews. So he said, abstain from these things. If you don't abstain from these things, then you're going to offend the Jews that you're there to fellowship with. wanted to remove any offensive practices without establishing legalistic practices. And this is important to realize because here is James and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem making it very clear and to us this morning that neither Jew nor Gentile are saved by keeping the law of Moses. And neither are they under it for living a holy life before God after they're saved. We know that the law can't save. We talked about this last week. But all this had to do with verse 21, the customs of the Jews. So these religious leaders, James and the elders, with, were, were great with the salvation of the Gentiles. They didn't have any concern, or they, they delighted in it. They rejoiced in that. Independent, salvation independent of the law. And they didn't have the slightest interest in turning these Gentile believers into Jews once they're saved. And Gentiles would not be forced to become Jews once they're saved. And the Jews would not have to abandon their spiritual heritage once they're saved. And Paul hears all of this. And he agreed to do everything they proposed, and then he did it. He sponsored the four men and was purified along with them. Now, it's important to understand a couple of critical things. First, 
realized the sacrifices that were associated with the Nazarite vow had nothing to do with the atonement with God, with salvation. Nothing to do with salvation. It was simply an expression of their devotion to God. Nothing associated with the Nazarite vow, including sacrifices, in any way diminished the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as the sole satisfying payment for the forgiveness of sins. None of that was in addition to what Jesus had done. No, it's what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago to atone for the sin of mankind. Nothing else could atone for man's sin. So when Paul agreed to make these sacrifices, listen, he wasn't compromising in any way concerning the death of Jesus as the sin offering. Now, the second thing we need to understand is that the statement of James to Paul in verse 24, where he said this, that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. There are some people that have taken this and interpreted it to mean that James believed in the necessity of keeping the law as a means of establishing our own right righteousness before God as opposed to the righteousness being put on our account on the basis of simple trust in Jesus for our forgiveness of sins. They said, James, no, no. He said salvation comes from the law. And, you know, we can look at this and, and say, that can't possibly be. Paul would never support that. James would never communicate that. The law was not instrumental in make, bringing a person to salvation. It's needed, the law is needed to point us to the need for salvation, to the need for Jesus Christ. Because as we talked about last week, none of us can obey the law, can we? Two numbers come to mind. Five, five. Fifty-five. Right? Nobody can keep the law. And that's just kind of a silly example. But we know in our hearts that we sin every single day. No matter what the law tells us, we violate it somehow, some way, through our actions, through our thoughts, through our motive, our ambitions, whatever it might be. And the law points that out to us, that you can keep the law. And we say, yes, I need Jesus then. He has kept all the law. And therefore, when I come to Christ... My righteousness isn't from the law or obeying the law. It's from following after Jesus and receiving him as my Lord and Savior and realizing and accepting the fact when he died on the cross, he did that. He laid his life down to pay for every single sin I've committed past, present, and future. Who else can do that? There is no other perfect sacrifice, only Jesus only Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And this is what Paul wrote. For it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. What do you do with a gift? You receive it, right? You receive it. You don't earn it. You simply receive it. And what Paul said here, it's a gift. Our salvation is a gift from God to those that believe. So, you know, to look at James in a way that 
James said you need to be saved by the law. It's inconceivable. He knew full well that salvation was based solely on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that nothing could or should be added to that finished work. In James 1.1, he said, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say I'm a servant of myself. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? In other words, if you respect some other way as a means of salvation, it's impossible. He's not a respecter of persons and neither is God. So James realized that salvation is based solely on faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's never, we need to remember this, it's never Jesus and something. If someone says, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you also must do this, you can very quickly say, no, that's not what the Scriptures teach. It's Jesus Christ alone. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, how do we apply this to our Christian lives? Well, there's a principle in Paul's life that we see in his ministry, whether he would be in the Gentile world or the Jewish world. And we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. And here's what it says. He said, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became, became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. So here in the section, Paul gives us several groups that he says, I will be as them in order to win them to Christ. Now, does this mean that Paul would be as a chameleon whose message would change with every situation? No, that's not what he's saying. Paul never, ever, ever compromised the message. And you know that Paul was a Jew, and he had a great burden for his own people. Romans 10.1 says, Brethren, my heart and desire and prayer is for God to save Israel, that they might be, excuse me, my prayer to God is for Israel, that they might be saved. That was his heart, his heart for the Jewish people. But his special calling, we know he was called to minister to the Gentiles. In Ephesians 3.8, he said, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Called to minister to the Gentiles. And we know he ministered to the Jews. Remember, whenever Paul would enter into a city, he'd look for the nearest synagogue. For what purpose? To preach the gospel to the Jews. If he was rejected by the Jews, where did he go? He went to the Gentiles. And when you look at Paul's sermons in the book of Acts, he adapted his approach, but not the message. Just the approach. The message was the same. For example, to the Jews, he started with the Old Testament. For the Gentiles, it began with the God of creation. 
to kings, and we're going to see this later in the book of Acts, to kings, he shared his personal testimony. There was no formula. Jesus had no formula either, did he? To Nicodemus, a religious leader, what did Jesus say? Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say, throw off your garments. He didn't say, walk away from the law. He said, no, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have a relationship with Jesus Christ if you even want to see the kingdom of God. Well, to the woman at the well, he spoke of the need for living water. To the woman that was caught in adultery, he said, where are your accusers? He said, go and sin no more. To the lame and sick, he healed in several ways. You see, there was no evangelistic formula Jesus used. He approached every situation very personally and intimately based on the need that he saw. And we need to do that too. And when we witness to others, we need to have some diplomacy and some tact so that people don't feel attacked. My goodness, I remember my early days as a Christian, I was like a, you know, I'd attack people. Not physically, but with my mouth. You know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. It's got to be this. I turned a lot of people away. So when you have an opportunity, I think God gave us two ears for a reason, didn't he? And one mouth. To listen to what they have to say. So you can gain a perspective of where they are spiritually. What they believe. And then as God opens up those opportunities to speak as he would have you to speak. For example, you know, one of the things many of us hear quite often is this. You know, when we begin a spiritual conversation with somebody, they might say, not everybody, but some might say, well, you know, I, I'm a Roman Catholic. Okay. Well, I think the wrong approach would be to, as I did, say, well, gee, you can't do this. It's against the Word of God. You can't do that. You can't do this other thing. Point out doctrinal errors or beliefs right away. Why shouldn't we do that? Well, we'll drive them away. Listen, why do I want to talk to you? You make me feel condemned. Well, try this. Then when they say, well, I'm I'm a Roman Catholic. I go to the Catholic Church. Oh, I, I see. Yeah, okay. I was there too. And you know what? I, I appreciate the love and kindness that those within the church showed me. I was blessed with a lot of friends who seemed to have the same interest as me. Yeah, I was baptized. I had my first communion. I had my confirmation. I was married there. Some good memories. And they might say, well, you said also that you were a Roman Catholic. Yes, I was. Hmm. Why the change? And that opens up a whole different thing, doesn't it? A whole different discussion. Well, here's why I needed to have a relationship with God in a way that I never had before. I found that I wasn't growing spiritually because there wasn't an emphasis on me reading the Word of God. And these are things that God stirred in my heart to enhance a relationship or begin a relationship with the one true and living God, me and Him where my salvation became all about what he has done rather than what what is taking place around me. That's building a bridge and not a wall. And you know what? A good witness always builds a bridge. In 1 Corinthians 9.19, remember Paul, we just shared this. He said, I'm free from all men, yet I have made myself a servant of all. 
Paul's view of himself is that he was a free man and not under the obligation of the law. He was, he was not bound to serve them. He was not under the obligation to do anything but share the truth. And the beautiful thing that Paul is, he used his freedom in a beautiful way to exercise his freedom to do willingly, to willingly become a servant. You know, Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, the scriptures tell us. And Paul said, I just want to serve. Why? For the furtherance of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel brings freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from death. Freedom from bondage to whatever it might be. We can become in bondage to many, many things that are sinful. And sin entraps us. And the gospel frees us. But Paul wouldn't allow his own freedom freedom to worship in the way that God would lead him to worship, he wouldn't allow his freedom to stand in the way of someone coming to Christ. And what he would do, he would set aside his own rights for the sake of others because Paul would call himself a bondservant, remember? A bondslave, a doulos. In, in the Old Testament, doulos, the servants had no rights. Everything was in accordance with what their master would have them to do. And this is what Paul's speaking. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know, we have an expression in our home referring to sports where someone would sacrifice their own body with it for the sake of the team, right? You see it on Sundays on football games and so on. But for Paul, it was real. You know, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're just going to touch on a few verses there. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24. And this is, this is all for the sake of the gospel. He said, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one or minus one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in a deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Paul's not boasting. This was his life. And these things took place in his life because he was compelled to share the gospel. It came at his own physical expense, didn't it? Expense of his own comforts and safety. Was he careless? I don't think Paul was careless. He was compelled because he wanted none to perish apart from Christ. The greatest example is Jesus. You know, look at his life. 
His life was all about giving, never about taking. Taking Matthew 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to give his life a ransom for many. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is for the sake of the loss, there isn't a liberty or a freedom or a right in the whole world that I would lay aside to see a person saved. To see a person go from darkness to light. To see a person go from guilt and condemnation to forgiveness was the most important thing for the Apostle Paul. His personal rights, his personal liberties meant nothing to him compared to bringing the gospel to another. Why? Well, because Paul saw the value of a soul, a human soul. No one who values their rights as the most important thing in their life would ever write what we read in 1 Corinthians, 19, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23, because their rights are more important to them than a saved soul. What Paul is saying is this, from his perspective, it's not about me. It's not about my rights. It's about a person getting saved. That's it. Not a personal agenda. Not to prove himself right. Not to prove himself doctrinally superior. It's not about knowing more. It's all about saving souls and bringing the lost to the great news of the gospel. Paul didn't get saved to fight with a bunch of Christians over their rights. He would turn away from all those politics and nonsense and give his life to the thing that is the most important thing on earth, and that is that people would be one to Jesus Christ and be saved. And whatever rights Paul would give up in order to do that was just fine with him. When he went to the Jews, again, he went to their synagogue on the Sabbath. And not only did he go on the Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And he spoke to them of the law and the prophets. You see, he met them wherever they were, and then it pointed them to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points directly to Jesus Christ. And Paul used that. He would eat the things that they would eat in observance of the law. And because he was free in Christ, he gave up his right to eat whatever he desired so that the Jews wouldn't be stumbled and turn away. Paul, you're eating that. I can't hang out with you. No. Hey, let's, let's eat this food together. In those days, the Jews and Gentiles were polar opposites, but Paul chose to focus on the essential elements of the Christian faith. The things that are considered to be principal and foundational to the Christian faith. That was his focus. It was a quote by G. Campbell Morgan. He said this, I realize the more spiritual a man I become, the less denominational I become. How true that is, isn't it? And listen, I'm not at all suggesting for a moment that you... Let go of your firm, firmly held convictions on the truth of God's word. Hold your convictions firmly. Be secure in the principle and foundational of our faith without compromise. 
Am I willing to set aside non-principle and non-foundational things for the sake of unity with other Christians so we can enjoy fellowship together in Christ? And I know, you know, within the fellowship here, some, some of us believe different things. We believe the Scriptures tell us different things. You know, we very strongly embrace the pre-tribulation rapture. I believe that's what God's Word says. There's others that believe differently, mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. Do I agree with those things? No. Does it mean we can't have fellowship together? It certainly gives us a different perspective on the end times, absolutely. But do we say, well, we can't fellowship with you. When we all trust in Jesus Christ, we believe that he is the Son of God, that he came and laid his life down as as atoning sacrifice for my sin. That is the root of our, self, our, of our, our faith, isn't it? You know, some people believe that we ought to be worshiping on Saturday. Oh, okay, you may worship on Saturday. But the foundation needs to be the same. Who Jesus is and why he came. When we look at this passage in Scripture, here in Acts 21, God was pleased to bless both the Gentile church and the Jewish church in Jerusalem in spite of their cultural differences. God didn't have a need to take sides in this, did he? What is that? Grace upon grace upon grace without compromise. Think about this. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus was with his disciples. And we find this in verse 49. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. Not sure if John was looking for a pat on the back, although it seems like it. Maybe, maybe he was trying to demonstrate his loyalty to Jesus. But whatever it was that, that John saw and the way he responded, he misread Jesus completely. Because in the very next verse, Jesus said this. He said, forbid him not, for he that is not against us is with us. But Jesus he does things a little differently than we're doing them. Jesus would say, is he with us or is he against us? And I can't help but think, and you know, I... In my earlier days as a Christian, and I, I agree with what G. Campbell Morgan said, you know, I would stand so firmly on things that I didn't need to necessarily stand so firmly on. Not that my, my beliefs were compromised in any way. I believe what I believe in accordance with the Scriptures. But getting into arguments with people, Breaking off from people at times because there was some slight differences. And there's a lot of division within the body of Christ. For the very thing that, that John had said, well, he's not, he's not one of us. But Jesus said, don't pick fights with those that are on our side just because they do things differently or maybe belong to a different group. And it's a needed reminder, I believe, family, because our natural tendency in the flesh 
is away from what we see in Paul and James and Jesus in Luke chapter 9 and to fight it out and break off. But I believe that we need to look at things differently in the spirit of unity over the principal and foundational elements of our faith versus those things that are not foundational in order to help us foster a spirit of unity. Sometimes we just want to prove ourselves right. And the source of that is pride. But sometimes we need to to realize others have views that they may hold very strongly as well. And should we avoid them? I'm not talking about, you know, if there's heresy, yeah, we're to avoid that. I'm not talking about that. but to embrace the gospel because the gospel brings freedom. Believe what you believe and why you believe it. And remember that the principle and foundational is is so important and it will bring unity. And then, okay, yes, there there may be differences. You know, so-and-so believes in the mid-tribulation rapture. Okay, I, I know what I believe. You know what you believe. Do I agree with what you believe? No, I don't. But what do we do? I'll tell you what I do. I'm not going to argue the point. I'm going to bring it before the Lord and pray. Lord, is there, is, is there something that needs to be changed? It's up to you to change it. I bring this to you because I love this person. I care about this person. And you love him even more than I do. Again, I don't want you to misread what I'm saying here. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to do what's needful and necessary. You know, there's, there's so much division within the body of Christ now, and it's getting worse. You know, many don't even open up a Bible anymore. They've got another, another, another idea about how to bring people to Christ. But you know what? There's only one way, and that is the gospel. There's only one way. Again, stand strong in what you believe. Stand on the foundational principles that God has given us. Again, the most important doctrine in the Bible is salvation. Salvation. People coming to Christ. And oftentimes, you know, family, we need to make allowances for one another. If someone is absolutely sharing something or a belief that they have that's contrary to God's word, then we have an obligation to bring that forward and say, listen, here's what, what the scriptures teach us. Here's the word of God says. And this is what you must believe. We have that duty before God. But we also have a duty before God to bring love and unity within the body of Christ. Not at any cost. I'm not saying that. But we need to choose our battles wisely, don't we? And it's a lesson for me that has taken a lot of years to learn. And I'm still learning it. I I learned a lot through reading what took place in Acts chapter 21. 
So we learn and we grow together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we just want to rightly divide the word of truth. This is our heart. And help us to do our part in in being faithful servants of yours and to be faithful in sharing the truth of your word with others. That we, as the Apostle Paul, would be faithful in, in bringing forth the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation for all, to all that believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile. Lord, our foundation is on Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. We trust the word of God is complete, as inerrant and perfect in every way because you've given it to us and it is perfect. And Lord, we as, as human beings, we look at things differently at times. We see things differently, but we are trusting in your Holy Spirit that through all the differences, Lord, you would bring unity within the body that the one we would be looking to is you the one that shall supply all of our need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And Father, we've had so much to say about the gospel today and the need for salvation. Father, if there's anyone that, with an earshot of this, Father, that hasn't yet come to Christ and received forgiveness of sin, Lord, the most important thing in all the world is, is that every person would come to Christ and be saved, and to, to enjoy an eternity and, and the beauty of heaven with you. The alternative is devastating, but it's real. So, Father, if there's anyone that hasn't yet come to you, may today be the day when they make confession of sin to you and may place their trust in Jesus Christ in the finished work of the cross and receive the gift of salvation that you've freely given Lord, we put those folks before you now and ask that you would have your way in their heart, please. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.